the name of Jesus. Amen. If you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 35. And as you hold your Bible there open, I'll give you a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews as it was written to the Jews. And not for the purpose of showing that Jesus was the Messiah. It was written to Jews who were already Christians. So these people did not need convincing that Jesus was the Messiah. It was written more specifically to show how Jesus was the fulfillment of all that was ceremonial and shadowy in their past practice of worship. Jesus was the final and eternal priest. He was the consummate sacrifice ministering and being offered up to the Father in a heavenly temple, which was not the product of any man's labor, but was the real thing, the actual residence, where all of his creatures, particularly those who have special worship responsibility, surround the Father and live and worship eternally in his presence. It was this temple, the real one in heaven, that was the archetype for the shadowy tabernacle and temple that the Jews had known on earth. And unlike a a car that you may have designed and you may have built a prototype car if you worked for the auto companies, when you build the prototype and they decide to manufacture it, what you see produced after the prototype will probably be very much the same, if not identical, to the one you produced initially. Well, although cars are fashioned like that, Jesus, this priest, Jesus, this sacrifice, and this heavenly temple that he ministered in were completely sufficient and excellent, while the copies that were fashioned after them were not perfected, and they were not excellent, and they were not sufficient. So we are told in Hebrews that while the patriarchs were, were uh, participants in the worship offered in and through the copies, they were in fact not perfected in and by them. They were, however, be able to be made perfect when the promise was finally fulfilled in Christ. And they, the faithful, as they're called in the book of Hebrews, are in Christ with the members of the church, even though they lived and died upon the earth before the promise was revealed. So they are included with the church, having faith before the church was revealed. I always think about this when I read the book of Revelation, John's account of the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of the sky. Do you remember that account at the end of the book of Revelation? The heavenly Jerusalem is a vision of the church depicted as a city. And do you remember who the foundation stones of the city are? Who are they? Anybody remember? The apostles. The apostles formed the stones, the foundation of the city. Do you remember who formed the gates of the city? The patriarchs. The grandsons of Abraham. 
I always think about this and it helps me to understand somewhat the relationship between those who are of faith in the Old Testament and how they are included in the New Testament. Because they had to be brought in through the church. It's a little counterintuitive that the apostles who came after the patriarchs would actually form the foundation, isn't it? But that's how God has set it up and that's how he has designed it. That the patriarchs are built and, and brought into the church and they are found and made perfect in that context. And I also think it's interesting that they form the gates of the city, which makes me think of the promise to Abraham. Because the promise to Abraham was that those who would be his descendants would belong to God. And so we, through Jesus Christ, become descendants of Abraham, and so we enter in to the church as children of Abraham. And so the gates, I think, are illustrative of that promise. Well, with this background in Hebrews, Paul brings us to the specific teaching concerning faith. And I want us to go there this morning, and I want us to connect the last verses of chapter 11 with the first verses, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the last verses of chapter 10 with the first verses of chapter 11. So if you'll read with me, starting at verse 35 in chapter 10, and then we will skip chapter 11 and start in at the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have, re- you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you, will, you may... Re- Excuse me. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And then, of course, chapter 11 is famous in our minds as the faith chapter in the scripture, as all of those saints of the Old Testament are are delineated and talked about in what they did in response to the faith that they had and how they finally are perfected in Christ with us. And then you begin chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. And then, of course, these verses should be familiar to you because they were read in our response, in our assurance of pardon this morning by Mr. Huck. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For the son is, what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I want us this morning to consider two concepts from these scriptures, from chapter 10 and from chapter 12. One is the concept of shrinking back and the other is the concept of resistance. Now, What does it mean to shrink back? What does it literally mean? It means to retreat backwards stealthily. Now, if you can imagine that I could do anything stealthily, I'm going to retreat back. Okay? Hiding behind the microphone. Black guitar. Black is slimming. And I can now easily cower behind the piano, you see, to shrink back stealthily. Well, when we think of shrinking back in a physical sense, there are a lot of things we can think that we would shrink from. We, most of us, if we're smart, shrink back from a a fight. We don't want to take on a fight. And so we shrink back from that and probably should. Some of us shrink back from people that we don't want to talk to, right? What else do we shrink back from? We we shrink back from uh, dangerous animals. We shrink back from falling trees, right? Only men shrink back very manly from falling trees, But if you're a man, you have to shrink back in enough time so that you don't have to turn and run and show that you you didn't shrink back quick enough. Why do we shrink back from these things? Why do we retreat from them? Well, if we take them on, it's very, very unpleasant. And that's, that's why we don't want to take them on. We want to avoid them. Catching a falling tree is not pleasant. You don't see the guy like in baseball. I've got it, I've got it, running out to the falling tree. It's something we know is going to be very unpleasant. But God's not talking here about shrinking back from physical things, though, is he? He's not talking about those things. He's actually prepping us in chapter 10 for what he's going to say in chapters 11 and 12. He's prepping us for... The, the dialogue or the truth that he wants revealed to us on faith. He's talking about shrinking back from something spiritual. And he is, in fact, talking about not having faith. Since we know that all faith is exercised in obedience, we see that clearly in chapter 11. We can also say that to shrink back from faith is to shrink back from obedience. 
And since the opposite of obedience to God is disobedience, or what? Sin. We can certainly say then that to shrink back spiritually is to sin. And what does it say? God is not pleased with those who shrink back. Why do we shrink back? Well, the alternative is resistance. And resistance isn't pleasant. Uh, We are familiar with resistance, and I'm not an electrician, but uh, you can correct me afterwards if I'm wrong. If there is resistance in an electrical line, it creates friction and finally heat and finally a fire and destruction. And so we shrink back because there is resistance and it's uncomfortable. There's resistance when we try not to sin. And so we take the path of least resistance and we sin. And if we were to resist against it, of course we would not be sinning. When we resist against sin, though, we don't, resist, we don't just feel the pressure of our own sinfulness we also feel the pressure of the sinfulness of the people around us. Uh, To use an example, as an example, gossip. Since we have a gossip-free church here, right? Um, To use gossip as an example, if you are a gossip and you want to stop, you'll find a war within you, the war of how much fun it was to gossip, from the darkness of your heart. And you'll also find a war outside of you in the sin of the people around you, your former gossiping buddies. Because they're going to cajole you to come back and join them in the gossip. And they're going to mock you and persecute you for stopping and call you what? Holier than thou. You're just holier than thou. Resistance is difficult. It's very, very hard. Consider an illustration from the Old Testament this morning from 2 Kings 22. For some of you, it will be a familiar story, and I'm just going to read very quickly the highlights of the story of King Josiah, King Josiah of Judah. He was a young king, and the Bible says he did right in the sight of the Lord. And at some point, he sent... Shaphan, one of his servants, to Hilkiah the high priest to ask Hilkiah to count the money and to engage some workers with the money that had been collected in the temple, engage some workers to do the repairs on the temple. And when Shaphan went to Hilkiah to talk to him about this and to talk to him about getting the men to do the work, Hilkiah produced something that he had found. Do you know what it was? It was the book of the law. It was the Pentateuch, very probably, or the book of Deuteronomy, at the least. And it was a find for these men. It was startling. We found this book in the temple. And so uh, Shaphan reads the book and he says, Wow! In the temple to the Lord, there's a book, and it has these 
revelations in it that God has given to us. How very interesting. So he goes back to Josiah and he says, well, I did as you told, you told me and we're, we're working on the repairs of the temple. But look, Hilkiah gave me this book. And so he starts reading to Josiah the word of God, the law. And what does it say after uh, Josiah was read the book? It said that Josiah tore his clothes and he immediately repented. He sent and gathered all the people around him at the house of the Lord and he read the book to them. And he made a covenant to God that he would vow to do the things that God had commanded them to do in the book. And the people joined him in the covenant. So, what resistance then, because here's where the rubber really meets the road, what resistance then did Josiah offer against his sin? What did he do? Very, very quickly. He brought out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for veil, and the hosts of heaven, he burned them. He did away with the idolatrous priest. He burned the incense of Baal, who burned the incense of Baal, and to the sun, and to the moon, and to the constellations of the hosts of heaven. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord. Now, if you know what an Asherah is, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a pole dedicated to uh, essentially fertility. It's a disgusting thing. They had this thing set up apparently in the temple. And so he brought this out of the temple. And he ground it to dust, and he threw its dust on the graves of the people. He broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes and the houses where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. He defiled the high places. He broke down the high places in the gates where they were in the city. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of Himmon, so that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire of Moloch. So they were, you know, they were giving their children in the fire. And he destroyed that. He did away with the horses of the kings of Judah, the ones they had given to the sun. He burned the chariots of the sun with fire. He broke the altars at which Manasseh had made in the house of the Lord. He broke these down and he smashed them there and he threw their dust into the brook of Kidron. Okay, he went up to the high places and all the places where they were worshiping and he broke them down and he defiled the high places so that they were repulsive to those who had formerly worshipped there. He broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherim. And he broke the altar that was at Bethel, even the uh, altar that was the high place. And I think that's in the, in the northern kingdom. He broke that down. Uh, he also broke down the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria, just as he did in Bethel. And all the priests of the high places he slaughtered. And he burned their bones on the altars. He completely purged all of the sin out of the midst of them. And finally, it says in verse 24 of chapter 23, he removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations which were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. And then they celebrated the Passover, which it says it hadn't been celebrated for a long, long time. And he, and he led the people in celebrating the Passover. Now I want to ask you some questions. Do you think there was any 
possibility of conflict even in Josiah's heart as he heard those words. Now, we're, we're speculating, but I think for a second as he heard those words, he had conflict in his heart because he had been there and he'd watched all these things happen for years. And they were part of his life as well. Now, do you think when Josiah finally reconciled all that conflict and that, that tension that was within him, do you think that when he started going out and chopping up the things that people loved and chopping up the people, okay, do you think it might have caused a little resistance from anyone, from any quarter? Was it difficult for Josiah to do what he did? Was it tough to take the stand? Was it tough for him to work through those processes? I say, I'll bet it was very difficult. I'll bet it was very difficult. Because it, there was a lot at stake in people's minds. I mean, think about it if it were possible today. Think about the places that we associate with heinous sin in our community. Think about if we just started going over with a bulldozer and dozing down buildings where they did things that we knew were sinful. Think if we went to the phone company and we unplugged all the 900 lines, the sex hotlines, and all of the, uh, what do you call those things, the uh, psychic hotlines, thank you. What if we unplugged all of those things? Do you think there would be any resistance, huh? Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking care of these things. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Josiah, I'm sure, encountered resistance. I don't know how much he encountered within himself. Maybe it was only for a split second. Maybe it was only while it was being read at the beginning of the reading. I don't know how much he encountered outside of himself. But I'll bet there was resistance. What might have Josiah done instead of repenting and obeying? Well, I think Josiah probably would have done the same things that we tend to do instead of repenting and obeying. And I'm going to list four of them, and you may be able to think of other, other things that you have done or others do. But rather than resisting, quite often we avoid, avoid conflict. We live in denial. I think of Acts chapter 24 when Felix was being preached to by Paul. Do you remember and it says that Paul was there before Felix and he was disgusting, disgusting. He was discussing, he was discussing righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. And you know what Felix said? Go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. It says he was frightened. And a good way to deal with it is to get rid of what's frightening you. Avoid the problem. Stay in denial. So he sends Paul away. Why does he send him away? Well, because like us, hearing that discussion in his position, he knew he was a sinner. 
And he knew he was guilty. So sometimes we do that. I don't, I don't want to know about what God expects because if I knew about what God expected, well then I might feel the pang and the pressure of it. Our children are like that. They love to claim ignorance. I didn't know that's what you wanted. I didn't know that's what you wanted. How else do we avoid resisting? Well, another way we avoid resisting is that we become angry. We become angry. And I think of in the scriptures, I think of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the Judaizers. And the accounts we read of them as they're fighting and knuckles are white and their teeth are gnashing and they're pulling the hair out of their beards, angry at what they're hearing. You don't tell me that I'm a sinner. This may not be as blatant for us, but it comes out in our lives when we become angry about what God wants to do in sanctifying us. The thought of something else that God wants us to do to represent him, often makes us angry. God, I've already done so much. I've already done so much, and now you want me to, you want me to go and confess Jesus before the people I work with. Uh, I don't want to do that. For a moment, I'm going to get a little personal with some of us, because we've had this debate going on. Uh, on the church list and in conversations about the uh, Mel Gibson movie, The Passion. And I'm not going to address the rightness or wrongness of the movie in this, but I want you to consider something about how you, respond, how you would respond to someone proposing to you that these could be representative of idols, that this could be representative of idols, or that this could be sin. Because I know, as I've talked to people, I know, as I started first thinking about it, there was a little anger in me. I mean, we're countercultural about everything already, aren't we? Aren't we against the culture on abortion and men and women's roles and sexual deviancy and evolution and discipline of children already? Isn't that enough? Come on! I've got to look silly about something else? The wonderful thing is, as we've done, as we found obedience to God in those issues and being certainly cultural about them, we've found in our faith the reward, haven't we? God has given us trust and, and understanding. But forget about the issue and think about the anger that you might have felt at just the thought of the issue, of having to deal with it. An avoidance. A shrinking back from taking it on. Another thing we do is that we bargain with God. 
Now, the kings preceding Josiah were really good at bargaining with God. Are you aware of the way they bargained with God? It's not so obvious, but I think in the way that they, they would do their reforms quite often would be a form of bargaining. They would get rid of the idols in town, but they wouldn't get rid of the idols up on the high places. How many times does it say, and he never removed the idols on the high places, and he didn't tear down the high places, and the high places he left standing? And it was this sort of way of appeasing, of trying to find a middle road, of making some kind of a bargain. At least people are worshiping, right? As a church, we have a stated position about the doctrine of roles, the roles of men and women. We just had a membership class this past week, and one of the things we do is we present that stated position. We don't, we don't go through it and read it, but we encourage the people in the membership class to read the, the position on that issue. And the position is understood to be the complementarian rather the, than the egalitarian position. And if you don't know the difference between the two, uh, somebody can explain it to you, and that's fine. Somebody here would be glad to, one of the elders or, or someone in the church that you might have uh, come with. But essentially, there is something in the complementarian position that says that women are not to have authoritative roles in church over men, particularly in preaching and teaching. And I hear this from people when I get in discussions with them about this issue. I hear the bargaining come out. And the bargaining comes out is that the bargaining that comes out is, well, look at all these ministries where there's women preaching and teaching. Look at all these people who are being taught and evangelized. It's obvious. Look at the end. It doesn't matter what the means is. Look at the end. Think of all the people who will be evangelized. Another position we take rather than dealing with it, dealing with our sin, is we become depressed. And... I think that possibly in the time, between he, the time between the time where he denied Christ and where Christ again received him, I think possibly that that's where Peter was. He was in that place of depression, that very difficult spot. Now, you may have noticed something as I listed off these four things. Did anyone notice anything? Did anyone notice a pattern that was familiar to them? Let me say them real quickly. Denial, anger, bargaining, and depression. Does anybody recognize anything familiar in those? They're the classic symptoms that people go through when they grieve over their impending death. As I was preparing this, I realized as I was writing them that I was writing those classical, those classical attributes or classical, classical stages that people go through. We find discomfort in the death of our own sin. And we go through this process 
Sometimes like that. And sometimes we fight and parry and work through it. But we find discomfort in it. And what happens finally? Well, finally, we have acceptance. That's the thing that happens in the, in the grieving process. They come to accept their death, that it's coming. That's the way it is for us. We have this sudden time where, why is it? I don't know. We have this sudden time where we say, oh yeah, now I remember. I'm a sinner. My heart is wicked beyond comprehension. Maybe I need to resist in this case. Maybe I need to believe. Maybe I need to obey. Maybe I need to have faith. And this becomes the death of sin in us. And the book of Hebrews gives us the way to resist. And I want to go through that real quickly. First in chapter 10, verse 35, he says, Don't throw away your confidence. Be courageous. Be fearless. Be bold. Stay away from the couch, the depression couch. Don't throw away your confidence. What is that song that they sing at men's group? I don't know it. Be valiant, be strong. Yeah, Lucas is laughing. What is it about that that's so funny? Be valiant. Be... How does it go? Lucas? Don't throw away your confidence. Be valiant, be strong. Resist the power of sin. Thank you, choir. <laughs> Secondly, we're told in chapter 12 to lay aside the comfort in the encumbrances and the easy sins. I'm too busy to resist. I'm too busy to fight against this. I'm too busy to read about this or to deal with this. Or to research this. Because I've got all this stuff to do. If we're going to fight the fight, we have to lay aside the encumbrances and the things we're carrying around that delay us from the battle. And we have to get rid of those easy sins. Now think about that word easy. Because there are sins that we hold on to that fit us like a glove. They're the besetting sins. They're the easy sins that we go to that we probably don't even recognize in ourselves that quite often we have to have someone come to us and say, you know, brother, you may not have noticed this. You know, sister, this may not have been apparent to you. Those easy sins, we have to get rid of them. Get rid of them. We have to run with endurance. In this particular competition, we're facing particular competition. And we have to run with endurance because there is a prize that's set before us. Now, I want to just speak for a moment to those people here this morning who actually don't count themselves to be Christians, who have not yet said, I believe in Jesus Christ, I'm a Christian. If you want to know what Christianity is, Christians are those people who recognize that they are sinners, 
And they recognize that God is a holy God and that he righteously and rightly judges sinners. Christians are those people who know that to be judged for their sins means certain spiritual and eternal death and damnation. They know that God, in his love for sinners, gave his son as a substitute for the wrongdoers, for the sinners, to take the punishment of those sinners, all of them that would accept that gift. That after placing their sinfulness upon Jesus, Christians know that God also gave and gives to them Jesus' righteousness, allowing them to have access to God the Father and the benefits of being adopted by him. And you may ask, well, what must I do to be saved? Well, that you must believe that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, that he died and was punished by God the Father in your place, and that he was resurrected from the dead by the power of God in the Holy Spirit, assuring your own personal, real, future resurrection. And you must believe that he is and will be ever after your king and your Lord. And those are not real familiar words to us, king and Lord, today. But you know what they mean. I really believe that you do. To become a Christian is by the grace or gift of God to believe these things for yourself. Committing to follow Jesus and to be his disciple. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian or you have not yet confessed, I want you to know clearly that I invite you, I invite you to believe on Jesus Christ and to be a Christian. And we welcome you. Another thing that they say, or that's said in the book of Hebrews that God says to us is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. What does that mean, to fix your eyes on Jesus? Well, if you wanted to win the Tour de France, who would you fix your eyes on? Lance. Lance Armstrong. Because he's won it the last five years in a row. Now, what does it mean to fix your eyes on Lance Armstrong if you want to win the Tour de France? Does that mean that you get a picture of Lance Armstrong in a magazine and you sit and stare at him for hour after hour? Does that mean that you fly to wherever Lance Armstrong is and that you stare at him in person hour after hour after hour? No. That means that you look at Lance Armstrong and you study him and you study and learn from him everything he has done to perfect bicycling including the, to the point of counting every Dorito he puts in his mouth to know exactly the 11 calories that were in it that he will use perfectly that day as he's cycling on his bicycle. That's how you would learn from the perfecter of cycling. So how do you learn from Jesus Christ? How do you fix your eye on Jesus Christ? Do you fix your eye on Jesus Christ? Well, you say, well, I can't because I can't go back in time. And I can't, uh, I can't fix my eye on Jesus Christ because I wasn't there. No, you can't. 
And you can't fix your eye on a picture of Jesus Christ or some artist's rendition of what they think he looked like because that wouldn't help you either to perfect your faith. You read and you hear and you know what Jesus did and how he perfected faith for you. And then you follow him. You become his disciple. You fix your eye on him. You take up your cross daily and follow him, as it says in Luke. When we resist, we encounter resistance. And I'm going to close with this. When we resist, we encounter resistance. And if you read those, the latter part of the section that I read in Hebrews 12, the part that has to do with the assurance of pardon that Wayne read in the service earlier. You see the connection between our resistance and God's discipline of us. And one thing that we need absolutely to do as we resist against sin, we need to remember every time those people at work say to us, you're just a holier than thou. Every time those people say, they look at us and laugh when we're praying over our meal at Arby's. Every time those people look at us and mock us and say, I can't believe you're so narrow-minded and bigoted and, and intolerant and on and on and on and on and on. You know what that is? That should be a constant reminder to you that God loves you. It is that very resistance that you take from sinners because you oppose your own sin that is proof that you belong to Christ and that God allows that upon you because He loves you and disciplines those who are His. And so you follow Jesus even through all of that resistance. Remember, as you resist... God loves you. God loves you. It's counter to what we understand to think that through this God would show His love to us. It's counter to what our society would teach. But it's absolutely true. And He demonstrated it first in the one who perfected it for us. He demonstrated it first in Jesus. And we walk and follow Him. Jesus says in John 15:20 in closing Remember the word that I said to you a slave is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you if they kept my word they will keep yours also let's pray Father we thank you this morning that you Love us. You love us in that you gave us Jesus Christ. But you didn't just do that. You love us in that you called us to follow your son Jesus, even through the great resistance. And Lord, that that following may mean, as we are perfected, our own physical death. As of yet, we have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. 
But Lord, you're pleased to assure us of your love and to demonstrate your plan in leading us in following Jesus. Thank you, Father, for that mercy. Lord, give us a hatred for our sin. Give us an understanding of our hearts. Help us to know when we are avoiding the very resistance we should put our hand to. Help us to know, Lord. Help us to know what pleases you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you'll take your bulletin or look up on the screen and stand with me. We'll sing our closing hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain. Please stand up. Thank you.